0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: You know, like that whole Yoga Sutra's idea of uh, the the fact that the eagle spreads its wings high then brings its wings down, like being the kind of the cycle of life almost that you have to... uh, like you have to experience growth in its fullest form, keep pushing yourself and your boundaries of growth and and then like keep pushing yourself and then there comes a point when you want nothing more in the world and you want to bring it down. Mm -hmm. Like you want to kind of like bring the wings down and spend inordinate amount of time in silence and contemplation. I don't think that's ever seeped into the West, right? Because... uh, No matter what you do, you want more and more and more. Not just materially, but emotionally want to keep growing, keep doing more things, keep stretching yourself. There is never that time for you to think that I've experienced everything in the world now, I have to just bring it down.
0: Karan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh, thank you, Shini. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, uh, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I actually came across your story because you wrote in and uh, somehow you managed to accomplish a miracle of all miracles, which was to get me to read a fiction book, which you wrote. (laughs) Uh, So rather than starting with the story in the background, I want to start a little bit differently than I have in the past. Uh, I want to start by asking you, what in your mind, is one experience or memory of childhood of a person or event that you feel has ultimately led you down the trajectory of doing all the work that you do
1: oh it 's a good question so so I, it, maybe it 's one I- image or it 's more like a collage mm-hmm. that i grew I grew up in the Himalayas in India in a place called Shimla, and Shimla was like is right at the foothills of the Himalayas in the north of India, and a lot of the experiences growing up didn't make a, a lot of sense because um uh, for instance at a at a very regular level we would see a lot of people uh, lawyers doctors engineers indian as well as outside from the west come and live near the village in ashrams and caves and stuff and they would actually do that and uh, and at that point i i couldn't we could never understand their motives you know growing up but i think like what's happened with me over a course of 30 years or so after I've come out of after I went away from our town where I grew up was uh, I think those images meant something because I ended up doing kind of something similar not just in the sabbatical but over a period of time I've always been pulled to this idea of like the other world you know like this like call it spirituality but that's just a vague word but like I've just been pulled to this Indian mystical traditions a lot and I think a lot of it came from seeing all those people around me in the childhood Hmm. yeah
0: what has been the impact on uh, your relationships with other people uh, as a byproduct of sort of growing up in what uh, sounds very much like a small-town environment in India, when most of India, based on what we see, is just overcrowding and craziness?
1: Yeah, and we I grew up in a very idyllic kind of a town, or at least at that time. Now, it, that also has like expanded a lot, so it's become more commercial. But at that time, it was pretty—so uh, so I think for a long time, it's almost the opposite effect happened— uh, I grew up with a very tight sense of community mm-hmm. because the small town had everybody knew everybody. I had 30 or 40 relatives who lived there, as you can imagine in an Indian family. But also <laughs> the family was even more, uh, the the community was even more tight-knit. Mm-hmm. So I think for a long period of time, I just didn't understand this concept of individual space and individual accomplishment. So uh, my coming to the US uh, for the first time was the first time I had enough space in my life to even think about all of those things so I think So I think, in a way it's the opposite effect I, I feel like uh, getting away from the town really helped me become liberated to pursue my interest in some form like I didn't even know for the first 28 years of my life I didn't know why I could write a novel so I started writing at age 28 and published my first novel at age 29 so in the last 6-7 years I've really expanded my writing and all of that stuff but, it, but it's surprising that I didn't have those I just didn't have enough space in my life to even know what I could be mm. yeah
0: so community is such an interesting concept to me because I, I you know I, I wrote this post recently that seems to be going kind of viral on Medium at the moment uh, about the 38 things I've learned from 38 years on the planet. Mm. And one of the things that I said is that we're more connected than we've ever been at any time in history and yet we're lonelier than we've ever been at mm-hmm. any time in history. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, um, even though, you know, you you obviously found individualism, uh, is community something that you still seek out in your life and your work? And if so, how? And and more importantly, how do other people bring a sense of community into their lives in a world that is, you know, continually connected, but more and more lonely?
1: I feel if you're living your dharma in some form, like this beautiful word in Sanskrit called dharma, Mm -hmm. I I felt that when I'm true to my dharma, I always am operating with a sense of community because... um, Because I guess my life is surrounded by people who are on the same path and when I'm off my dharma, I think that's when my sense of community diminishes completely. Mm. so 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 i think like i I guess the best thing that you can do to build a community instead of doing a very active like outreach i think you just have to live your dharma in some sense
0: okay so let's define what dharma is for people uh and then more importantly let's talk about how one goes about finding it and how your own work um and, and everything that you have done have kind of led you down the path of finding and discovering it
1: Yeah. And I love the word dharma because it's very interesting and layered and very different in the East as compared to the West in some form. Because, uh, so, so let's start with defining dharma. So in uh, dharma for me is the innate tendency of every being. Right. And uh, like the trees dharma is to grow and bear fruit. Uh, It's not to become a river or to dress up and go to office. Like that's the innate tendency of a tree. Mm -hmm. In the same way, uh, the difference in the humans is that the dharma is a more fluid concept and not a static concept. You are born with a certain, I guess, innate tendency, but your actions and your thoughts will change that tendency almost. So, so, So in a sense, the only goal for you in a way is to... Purify your thoughts and actions to the level that you are kind of living that dharma. So, so having said that, what I mean by that is, uh, if I take it from my own life perspective, um, I've never felt this calling to become a full-time writer or a full despite some significant success in writing. I've never felt this calling because I've always felt that my dharma is to be in business in some form. Mm-hmm. So, so I've always felt uh, that what I need to do is to purify my actions in business, and that will lead me to. Uh, like a different karma cause and effect and like so purifying my actions will lead you lead me to purer and purer reactions which in turn will allow enough space in my life to for me to change right Mm -hmm. so in a sense what I've seen with myself is that eight years ago when I first started writing I'd never written a novel before I wrote with some purity and I've seen that this creative side has deepened and deepened and the business side has like lessened a little bit so I I So so what I feel is that like, uh, like unlike the US act of becoming all the time, that you always go in this quest of wanting to become something. Mm -hmm. So you, you go from quitting your job as a lawyer to becoming a yoga teacher, for instance. There's just too much act of like dramatic reinventions and becoming. I almost feel that you have to let your purpose come to you by purifying where you are and acting in line with your tendency where you are. Mm. So so it's almost like like you don't have to become with that aggression. You just have to be and be pure in what you're doing. And that opens up things, you know?
0: Yeah, I guess the the question for me is, uh, you know, I think from from reading the book and we'll talk about the book in more detail, it seems that there's this very Western tendency to seek out uh, what Eastern mysticism provides. Right. Like we we think that to find enlightenment, we have to go and, you know, meditate at ashrams in India. And, uh, I think, you know, one of the more interesting things was I, uh, you almost subtly poked fun at all the sort of, you know, foreigners who come there for this spiritual thing with their crystals (laughs) and candles and these hippies. Uh, and yet, you know, we we live in a world that perpetuates a lot of that sort of mantra. So I, I guess, you know, I am wondering how, in our day-to-day lives, we find that sense of purity that you're talking about, um, how we bring it about in our day-to-day actions and the way we live on a day-to-day basis without having to spend, you know, all this time at an ashram in India.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. And I think that's where, like, uh, but what what happens in the West is, like, uh, that's this famous saying that, like, the robes don't make a monk. I think what happens is that when here people wear the robes too quickly. So the moment they start meditating and uh, doing a little bit of yoga, they want to wear the robes of the monk. And, like start to become a part of this lifestyle and start talking about vibrations and this and that, but that's not very authentic. Mm-hmm. So I think what you have to, in my opinion, do is use all these practices to be where you are in a better way, right? So I like I, like so the moment you start learning yoga and meditation, you don't have to quit to become a teacher or to uh, or to like you know go into a very very radical self reinvention process. You just have to be just a little bit better. You become a little better every day on your own. Mm-hmm. So I so I think the like like the yoga thought of the chitta vritti this idea that your goal is really to stop the fluctuations of the thought waves wherever you are I think that's the power of what you have to do really mm-hmm. so if you like uh, you know use these practices to be a little silent in what you do and that leads to I guess that leads to the space that opens up new paths versus you having to seek out new paths mm-hmm. so. You
0: know, I I think that to me, you're this sort of walking contradiction, uh, and a, and a a really bizarre paradox because you grew up in an Indian community, but you have this very sort of spiritual creative side and artistic side, and yet you work as an executive. So a couple of questions come from that. Um, one is, is, you know, what your parents were like, um, and what the impact that they've had on you has been. Uh, and the other is something that I think is on my mind because uh, our friend, my Carlos talked about it. She talked about how Certain cultures, especially in the Panamanian culture, they have sort of unwritten cultural dogmas. And of course, Indians have, you know, literally probably they could fill, you know, the Library of Congress with unwritten cultural dogmas. Yes. Uh, and I'm wondering how you resolve the tension between those two things
1: my when i grew up my parents were as indian as they get my mother was a school teacher my dad was in the army and they were very uh, like and i think it wasn't a, as much a cultural aspect as much as an economic environment we were all trained as you would well know to become either doctors or engineers right yeah. like that was the only two paradigms and you quickly knew whether you would become an a doctor or not right because you would know immediately and if you didn't and and like 80% of the people knew that they wouldn't be doctors you you were very single mindedly focused on becoming an engineer So I think for the first, I guess, 21, 22 years of my life, I didn't think at all. So Mm -hmm. I had no independent thought at all on who I wanted to be. I was just following the path laid out for me, Mm -hmm. which was to kind of get into engineering college, get into business school, and then become an engineer. And I like, it sounds very draconian as I speak now, but in some form or the other, I felt that there was some merit in the system in which you are not almost either allowed to, or you don't have the space to make Very dramatic decisions when your mind is not mature enough, almost. So I think in the US, what I've seen is that people have too much of a burden at age sixteen to figure out what they want to do, and that's why they like you know sometimes don't make the best decisions. And I think there's some merit in the system which we ended up with, right? So I uh, so I grew up in a very conventional household with a very conventional kind of way of thinking, and uh, and became an engineer, and then went to business school and started working in corporations and. And then I like, uh, then I eventually did follow my creative instincts and stuff. But um, yeah, but but it's never been like, uh, uh, it's been a very gradual shift almost, Mm -hmm. you know, like I've moved from corporations to doing this, but I've also, I've always retained my job. For many reasons. One is I, I actually express my dharma through it. I truly feel that I'm, I'm meant to be in business and corporate, so I feel nothing against it. Mm-hmm. And then I think more importantly, what I have felt is that when I not tying my passion to money has been the best decisions I've, I've ever made. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've almost like very singularly and very thoughtfully, not due to any pressure at all. So the, the more specific example here is that in 2012 or 2013, was it uh, that I? Uh, it, it was the same month that my second novel was optioned into a Hollywood film with very good, with a very significant deal. Mm-hmm. In the same month as I got a worldwide book deal for this third novel, so I think it all happened within the same month. Where there was this window where almost everybody was telling me the opposite, which is this is your time to, I guess, pursue your passion and become a writer. And I've never, and even then, I decided not to, yeah. because I've always felt it. It's been very liberating for me to answer my deepest questions through my writing and never write for um, like for ever thinking about my niche, my industry, my audience, my platform. I've never thought of those things. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, I think that's been almost the success of my writing because it, like the first two novels ended up doing very well in India because they captured a zeitgeist of a time, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I was writing from a very deep sense of answering my own questions that always resonated with a lot of people. And, and so anyway, so that choice has been very deliberate and I've never, and I don't think I'm going to change that unless my dharma changes almost by its own accord, you know? Mm. Yeah.
0: What are the deepest questions that you were seeking answers to through your writing?
1: surprising it's changed a lot so i in, in the third novel which you've just read or my first yeah. international novel i think you like those questions were the deepest questions that a human poses right why was the world created what is the nature of the creating energy why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world i had these questions because like a I've always had these questions, but my mother like had a very like dramatic and drastic decline with cancer in a very physical way mm-hmm. over a short period of time, and I think all these questions just surfaced up like in a very urgent way so 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 I think answering these questions became very important to me with I guess the third novel but i, I but in my early novels also I've like raised like the second one, which did very well in India, the reason it did well in almost was because I was raising the question of what does success mean in the world? Um, And my answer was atypical for the Indian conditioning. And I think that kind of like had a lot of resonance with, um, with, 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 I guess the youth going through in a, in a very seismic shift happening in society at that point. So, so yeah, so I think they've all answered questions that have been very important in my life at that point in time.
0: Hmm. Do you think that, uh, to bring these kinds of questions to the surface in our own lives and to really seek out answers to them, we have to experience something as difficult as you know losing a mother to uh, a life-threatening illness or something that is really, really traumatic. Because the reason I'm asking this is I have often found that just from not only in my own experience, but yeah. from speaking with so many people that I have, you having heard our interviews know this, uh, that often big change in, you know, this tendency to seek out answers to these very deep questions often is the byproduct of difficult things happening in our lives.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, there is a role of suffering in, uh, in like in, in some form or the other suffering always will lead you to a much a visceral experience with suffering is gonna always lead you to a non like a a more personal pursuit than any intellectual question right so I think when you have a visceral experience with it then you ask these kind of questions in a more real way so that happens. But personally, Shini, I'm a little bit on a this 414 model that I kind of define, which is I work for four years and then take a year off and then work for four years, take a year off. So I've done that over the last decade or so, and I've done three cycles of it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And and I think I'm I'm almost consciously allowing myself this space, I'm building in this space to contemplate almost. Yeah. So it's not like I work and write. I almost work in a very goal-driven way in the four years that I'm working, and then I take a year off to... I guess just be completely, consciously goalless. Go um, uh, just live in kind of very physical austerity. Not read a lot. Not have this constant hankering to become better, to grow. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of constantly, I'm letting be in order to like allow that space for contemplation, if you will.
0: What have been the byproducts of those years off, uh, in terms of how you've seen the world differently uh, before and after those experiences?
1: so many different things have happened in these years. So I've done it three times, one or two. The first one was not deliberate. This, second not deliberate in the sense it was just a year off to travel. I didn't realize I would end up with this model. Mm-hmm. But now I think the consistent things that happen is A, I make a lot of decisions out of spontaneity and... Intuitiveness than I ever do before the, uh, in the years that I'm working because in a way I'm almost very left-brained and logical. That's my natural way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And I think in this year of I'm almost training, I I, I I become very spontaneous and I think that comes back to my life a lot. Like I'm very comfortable then of, for instance, writing a novel without any outline or trajectory at all of letting the characters tell their story. Stuff Stuff like that would be very unnatural to my way of being. So it makes me very spontaneous. I... I think the silence is beautiful because what happens with someone like me is that I have this constant need to become better, right? So as a result, I read a lot. I consume a lot of self-help blogs. I, I read fiction. I, I, I read a lot of things to become better and, and like listen to podcasts or whatever. Like, But the point is that this whole year in which I'm almost not reading too much or anything at all, that silence is very fertile creatively because mm. – Uh, Like what I've noticed with myself is that I end up uh, otherwise regurgitating a lot of ideas that I'm hearing unconsciously. While in this year, I feel that my creations are, have a lot of purity to them because they come from a place of deep silence. That that happens. Then I think the physical austerity is very important also because I think we in this year, in the last year, for instance, my wife and I lived in an, like we went from Europe to India by road, like, you know, sleeping on train stations and like, you know, hostels and all that stuff. And then in India, we lived in an ashram for four, five months where we were in a just sleeping on a floor and living, like taking cold showers every day or whatever. Like those physical austerity becomes very liberating once again because I think all my decisions become very honest when I come back. Uh, like they're very linked to what, like they're never linked to any physical convenience, if you will, you know, like I'm never thinking about material things in some form. I think it's very, and it's it's easy to do it intellectually. I think I emotionally get liberated in a way that I genuinely have viscerally understood that it that all I need to be happy is a floor and an ashram and a shower, So I just make decisions out of more, uh, like deeper places, I think in some ways. So all, all these things happen for me in this year, you know.
0: What, has been the impact of the one-year periods on the four-year periods and the way you live your life and and more importantly what can people take away from this
1: um yeah the four-year periods uh, and it's almost like i come back with the, it, it, the the microcosm of that is that it's the same thing in a day like in a in a single day i try to try to and now with two like toddler like a toddler and an infant it's becoming harder and harder but <laughs> i i tend to i try to have a like a meditation definitely I meditate in the night no matter what time I sleep so there's a meditation practice in the night and a, a as much of stolen moments as I can manage in the morning the the impact of that is that it just gives you a little bit of a and in the same way that one year uh, coming back to the four years at a microcosm um I think the biggest thing that happens is that my action-reaction cycle breaks a little, mm-hmm. right? Like, So I'm not always, if there is a stimuli, I don't immediately react to it. There is a space in my automatic space in which I note that there is something happening in me that is, so if somebody is irritating me, my immediate reaction is not to get irritated, but to get this idea that I'm feeling irritated. And in this moment of I'm feeling irritated, the irritation either dissipates or reduces in intensity. In the same way, Physically, I note, notice that if I'm leaning forward or my steps are going too fast, I know immediately that I'm not in the moment. So, so I think those small physical cues uh, like break this action-reaction cycle. And I think that space is very magical for me because mm-hmm. it allows me to, I guess, live life with a little bit more silence than I would otherwise. Hold
2: up.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a good friend of mine, a mentor, had told me once that, you know, human beings are the only species with the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And when yeah. I asked him what the key was to developing that, he said a meditative practice. And yes. of course, you know, that, that sold me finally on cultivating a daily meditation practice. And even yeah. just doing 10 minutes a day, I'm kind of blown away by how less likely I am to react to things that used to once just cause me an insane amount of anxiety and stress.
1: Exactly, exactly. And then when I, once I come back from a year off like that, yeah. in which much of my time is not- not in deliberate meditation but there is a lot of in, innate kind of desire to spend a lot of time in meditation and uh, I, I, like i'm i'm very i guess i'm very silent for at least the first year and then the world starts to take its toll and and like keeps nipping 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 and then you know i need the year again mm-hmm. after three, after four years is what i've noticed mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> So I want to ask you a few more questions, yeah, about, um, growing up in the Himalayas and, and you know, just yeah. how different it is from what we sort of know of India, you know, because as I, as I was telling you before we hit record, my entire experience of India is my parents saying, we're going to India for the summer and me thinking, great, <laughs> that's not a vacation. That's a punishment. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm just curious, you know, what perceptions of all of this we have that are wrong and, you know, what, what is a more accurate reality of what this all looks like? Uh, and then, of course, we'll we'll start working our way into into what the book is all about.
1: Yeah, sure. So the first thing is that the Himalayas are actually almost as exotic as they might appear on paper. Like uh, when we were growing up there are strange things that you see every day which don't seem strange then. Now, because you are, that's your world, right? But mm-hmm. you do see yogis in their caves and all that kind of stuff like that you can think of from the Himalayas. So that happens. And and um, it's very idyllic in that way that, you know, you have a lot of free time and space and community and like playing in the mountainside. What, what's obviously not like um, talked about that much or, or is probably not covered is that the practical aspect of growing up there is pretty tough in some ways. Like, for instance, the schooling is terrible. Uh, when I came to Delhi in my 10th grade or whatever, like my high school, uh, I had never known, I didn't know what a parallel line was because I, like, my teacher had never taught geometry in the nine years that I'd grown up there, or like in the 14 years that I'd grown up there. So, so, so you know, like, I, I guess it's also backward in that form. So I think it's almost like you have a, uh, like in that, you always have that trade-off between, you know, uh, like, uh, contem- like the time to uh, contemplate and the progress in the world, almost like I think that trade off is uh, in in that uh, there is much more space there, but much less focus on achievement and progress. Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you feel <laughs> that um, having grown up there has made you a more enlightened person in your day to day life?
1: No, I don't. I I think, or maybe it's given it's planted some right questions. I think, like yeah. I, you know, like that whole Yoga Sutras idea of uh the the fact that the eagle spreads its wings high then brings its wings down like being the kind of the cycle of life almost that you have to uh like you have to experience growth in its fullest form keep pushing yourself and your boundaries of growth and and, then like keep pushing yourself and then there comes a point when you want nothing more in the world and you want to bring it down Mm -hmm. like you want to kind of like bring the wings down and spend inordinate amount of time, time in silence and contemplation I don't think that's ever seeped into the west right because uh No matter what you do, you want more and more and more, not just materially, but emotionally want to keep growing, keep doing more things, keep stretching yourself. There is never that time for you to think that I've experienced everything in the world now I have to just bring it down, like bring myself down. I think we just, I just grew up with that idea. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it came back. Like, I like I had this very visceral feeling uh, about three, four years ago that there is nothing more that I want in this world. Like, I don't want, uh, like, like there's just I don't want to see anything more. I don't want to travel anywhere else. I, do, I like I've seen everything I want to see, and I want to. So I almost. Uh, that's why we spent almost a year in an ashram mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't like I was trying to be something. It was just what I felt like doing. Mm. Uh, because I, I think somewhere it's uh, seeped down but here I think the whole thrust is like like you know our role models are like alien Musk, who's like who's trying to get to Mars or whatever like that's the, the whole culture is role modeling more and more and more and, and I think in the yoga sutras and stuff that I grew up in we did believe that there was a point in which at an individual level you've experienced everything and you just have to complete your journey by going within so I think the stuff like that really has helped in some form
0: So it sounds to me like reaching uh, that point of fulfillment where we don't feel as if we want anything more, uh, must be like the ultimate sense of freedom. Uh, at least that's what I think just from hearing the way you describe it. And yet I can't fathom the concept of reaching a point. I mean, I maybe experience it for like the briefest of moments every time I drop into a wave, maybe when I surf, uh, but I am wondering how we bring about that sense of satisfaction and the sense that we don't need more to be okay uh, in our lives, if that makes any sense at all.
1: It makes a lot of sense, Srini. I'll I'll unfortunately have to take this in a little bit of a mystical direction, which is the point (laughs) is that uh, when you grow up where I've grown up, um, this idea of life being a continuum of cause and effect and having many uh, like this whole cause and effect cycle karma continuing is a very seeped in part of my thinking so 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 like said another way if you're not feeling that innate tendency at this stage then you don't have to bring it on almost like you like you are just in this in this life you're meant to keep spreading the wings more and more and it's totally fine to do that mm and and I think there will be a lifetime if, like that's why I'm saying unfortunately it's a little bit of a mystic viewpoint but yeah. it's very seeped into my kind of thinking because of the like in which like for instance I'm very comfortable right now that in this life or at least at this phase where I'm thinking I'm not going to become a meditation teacher I'm not going to become a yogi in the Himalayas because I'm not ready for it yet mm-hmm. like I still have this pull towards business and like getting my word out there and selling my novels and I'm very the, the difference is that I'm very comfortable with it like I'm comfortable that that's what my that's the nature of my evolution in this uh, life. Well, so, let's do this. Uh, yes.
0: Let's shift gears and let's start start talking about the book. But where I yeah. want to start actually is by talking about fiction writing, because it's a totally different kind of writing than I'm used to doing as a nonfiction business yeah. writer. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about your creative process for you know how an idea comes to life, how you take that idea and you know bring it into the form that it becomes a book, how you build characters, all of that, which I realize is a really deep question. Uh, but I, I'm just very curious about what the creative process for your work looks like.
1: It's actually very simple for me, Shini. Like, uh, not simple the act of doing it, but the mm. conceptualization is always. I always uh, start with that. I need two pillars: entertainment and meaning. Okay. And and if my work, if I'm able to crack entertainment and meaning, I'm gonna. Then I just have to put in the work in order to get to the final output. So I almost start with the question of the, the meaning is very simple for me. Once again, I'm very. The question I ask myself is: What is the biggest, deepest personal question that I'm struggling with? Mm-hmm. right and 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 the novel becomes my tool to answer it uh, and then i like and the entertainment is what makes i think fiction special because entertainment allows you to create a, a new world that the reader the new fictive dream that the reader enters and forgets themselves in and almost like it's a touch of divinity in a way that you completely dissolve in the story and uh, and that's why I like the concept of entertainment so much and then I just think about what is the way I'll answer the meaning question in a completely page-turning way. Mm-hmm. So So I think those are the two. So when I conceptualize this novel, for instance... The meaning question was very clear because it had been haunting me for many years that I need to answer for myself very clearly the the, like, the hardest questions on the meaning of existence, the nature of creation, the nature of God. But I also knew that I didn't want to write a PhD thesis on that. So the <laughs> entertainment, the entertainment was I knew that I would write a journey through secret India that nobody would have access to. Otherwise, I would create a secret world around hidden ashrams and caves and stuff. So, uh, night markets. And also, uh, so, so I think those are the two pillars on which I create my story. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I do have to say, you, you know, you absolutely created a hidden India, one that was completely <laughs> off my radar. That's, that's actually what drew me into the book because I, I was so blown away by seeing this side of a country that I'd never seen. I, I'm curious uh, how much of your own life you use or, uh, use as sort of inspiration for the material and the characters in the book, because at moments I kept wondering, I'm like, how much of this is autobiographical? Like which parts of this are, are, you know, you telling you, you borrowing elements from your own life. And how do you find that balance between borrowing elements from your own life to make something inspiring and entertaining, but not taking it so far that it it basically becomes boring to the reader?
1: Yeah it's a good question. I think obviously a lot of it is uh, like the meaning but as I said the emotional yeah. every novel is emotionally autobiographical for me because I'm answering my own questions through it right. And the entertainment part uh just um I guess the the, the, the for me the kind of the principle almost is that fiction should have its own propulsive force and like it should have its own propulsion which means that the character should be making its own choices Mm -hmm. and and going along its own journey so the moment I sense myself present as an author giving a message of any kind I know that the fictive dream is going to break for my reader So, so I almost just go with like the uh, uh, the character asking a question borrowing heavily from my own adventures and that's why I think this year off is so important for me because I start living a life in that year because I'm outside my comfort zone so much like I'm like you know sleeping in train stations and this and that that a lot of adventure comes into my life and almost all my novels have borrowed from that sense of adventure Mm -hmm. and uh and then like, you know, then I, I think I just let my characters uh, pose myself. So in a sense, it's almost like if I think of my next novel, I, I haven't even started writing it yet, but I do know that my meaning is a lot to do with fatherhood and all that stuff that I'm asking myself on what it means to be um, a yogi in context of a family. And and I think the meaning will come from that and the entertainment will come from like uh, we live in, uh, we live in our next sabbatical, we plan to work in an orphanage in Cambodia for four years and live in Spain for four, year, for, uh, sorry, for four months and then live in Spain learning the guitar for four months as a family and I think a lot of those experiences will lead to the I guess the adventure and the entertainment that happens in the novel mm. yeah so
0: makes me raise a question about what your daily uh, creative habits look like are you one of these people who wakes up in the morning and writes every day uh, do you keep journals like wh- what is uh, what are your productivity systems and day-to-day habits look like
1: the productivity systems are set up for the four years to be incredibly productive and the one year to be completely unproductive almost. <laughs> so and, and that I think is the Like I think that balance is the reason for a little bit of transcendence kind of slipping into the work because the four years that I'm working and writing, if you will, I'm very Mm -hmm. workman-like. It's it's down to a little bit of a science that because I write after work, uh, I write three days a week, call it Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I write for four hours on one weekend. So so that's kind of my like very disciplined two hours of writing on Monday, Wednesday and Thursday and four hours of writing on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, so, so net in a week, I write 10 hours or like a little bit more than 10 hours, but very disciplined. I keep doing that over a period of a couple of years at least, right? Mm-hmm. But in the year that I'm off, I'm like the most indisciplined person in the world, which is I only write when I want to. Wow. And, and there would be months at a stretch in the last sabbatical when I was in the Himalayas that I didn't write at all. I was just hiking a lot in the mountains and like meeting all these yogis and strange people and like just being in the moment and and then uh, Europe to India, again, I didn't write a word because I was just enjoying the experience of like traveling and slipping into. And then in Portugal, I just wrote in a spurt for like 10 or 12 hours a day. In three months, in a, I lived in a village and just write, wrote for three months and almost like completed the novel then. So I'm almost very um just uh, completely based on what like it's totally slack Mm. and but i think this is very good because if i was always tight i think my novels would be very workmanlike. yeah and then when i'm in that slack period now i can't recognize some of the portions i've written in the novel because they've come from that complete like a dip into transcendence of some form you know so Mm -hmm. yeah so that's my creative process like tight and slack
0: what uh has been one of the most impactful memories uh, from uh, your time in the Himalayas or your travels uh, of somebody that you've met that has influenced and shaped the work uh, that you've done in your books?
1: Very good question. There is one... uh, There's one afternoon I remember with this uh, yogi who'd come out of the cave after spending eleven years there, and like he 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 had spent eleven years in a cave alone, just drinking milk that the that the villagers would leave uh, out of his cave, you know. So he was in complete silence and all that stuff. So he came out after eleven years, and he had started a school there in up in the mountains. I'm talking Gangotri, like very hard to get to, and. Uh, he, uh, like, he started a school, but not with this Western sense of, like, I'm going to change the destiny of kids and all that stuff. And, like, you know, create the school with many branches that's going to change the world. Like, not with that idea, but just, like, he had this, tend- like, this innate kind of desire to teach a little of what he had learned. So, I remember spending an afternoon with him which, in which he just kept answering my questions without me asking them and in that moment it never felt mystical at all in any form it felt very real because I was like I had been living in the Himalayas for three four months then and he um, and, and and I could just sense that like words are just like a grosser form of thought and thought is just a grosser form of feeling and he's just answering feelings that are coming to me and I remember these three, four hours that I spent with him talking about, and like talking, I guess, in that way about enlightenment and what living in a cave felt like. And I and I just remember coming out of that experience without thinking much. But but this whole idea that I cover in the book about the like the superpowers of yogis and all that stuff uh, that I think all originated from that afternoon, hmm. where I was like, I have met someone who's just viewing. All, everything has one energy, like something is grosser, something is more subtler. So there is really no limit to a human who's experienced that in a very real way, who's just experienced one energy everywhere and one consciousness everywhere and everything being subtle or gross manifestations of it. So I think a lot of that inspired my writing.
0: Hmm. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect setup to let you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about the book and then I have, have a few more other questions uh, <laughs> yeah, about <sure>. the writing.
1: <laughs> so the book is about a, a banker who becomes a yogi in the Himalayas, but it's not a self-transformation kind of story at all. Like like, Or I guess the transformation is subtle. The bigger, I guess, the more dominant portion of the book is the page turning adventure through hidden india so he like the guy goes from to hidden night markets and ashrams and caves and in this process transforms because of the experience he's had um and i think that's a good summary of the book a, a journey of transformation as a pay under page turning adventure through india yeah. Well, I, I think that's, a, that. like I said, I think it's a very
0: accurate description. And, uh, it, you know, as somebody who had spent time in India, it was really cool to see this other side of it. It made me much more curious. I had sworn off ever going back to India again. I thought I'm never spending my own money to go on vacation where I'm going to be able to deal with nothing but noise, dirt and pollution. But it really made me rethink uh, wanting to visit.
1: Yeah, because the remoter you get in the Himalayas, the more almost purer your experience becomes. So the place that I've written about in the Himalayas is about uh, twi- like, it's almost like uh, from Delhi, you have to take a bus to Rishikesh, which is like a six-hour journey. From Rishikesh, you have to go to Uttarkashi, which is another seven-hour journey by bus. And then you can only go hiking up six, seven hours up. So it's almost so remote to get to. Mm-hmm. And yet there are people who've, who are living there and they've like, uh, I, I guess th- that's why the environment is so kind of pure and off the the conventional idea that you have of India. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So
1: uh,
0: I want to ask a, a few questions that I, I typically haven't asked in interviews before. Um, what have been sort of the artistic influences in your life? Like if you could name a piece of art, whether it be a movie, you know, music, musician, or, or a book, something that has influenced and shaped the, the work that you've done, uh, what would you say it is?
1: The, um, a couple of things would have shaped it in surprising influences. I would say Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, surprising. And I'll tell you why. And not the, not actually the movie, the book. Okay. It, it's very formative for me in some form because uh, my aunt who was visiting from the US left the book in India when I was visiting college or something or coming back from college. And I remember being very transformed by reading the book in some form. And I like, I just chose at that point to live a life which was full of adventure in the way Forrest's life was. And I think for the first time, and, and must be age 22, 23, I think I realized the power of a story to transform in a way that I'd never felt with a diet of like self-improvement books, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like I, so I'd read a lot of like uh, things that we used to read in India that had, like I.O. biography or all that kind of stuff. And none of them had really kind of truly viscerally changed me. And I remember reading forest Gump and feeling changed as a person. So I think almost the seed of this whole idea of entertainment and meaning, like meaning always wrapped up in a very entertaining bundle, uh, came through forest Gump, and that's been my writing tradition forever. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah so and I've appreciated books like that the White Tiger, for instance, the most recent book that I remember in which I couldn't stop turning the pages, and yet obviously it was very real about india mm-hmm. so again i've i've kept i've like I've really enjoyed these. Uh, and I've never almost enjoyed books like, uh, and I hate to say it because I never criticize uh, books, but I like I've never been able to enjoy The Alchemist right. or Zen Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or Celestine Prophecy because I recognize the presence of an author in these books mm-hmm. who's trying to communicate a message to me. While when I look at books like Forrest Gump or something, there's no author; uh, it's just the character, the white tiger or whatever. So I'm I'm very influenced by literature in which. There is no uh, inherent meaning at all, but then yet it kind of completely leaves a very deep impact on you because the story is so melts, you melt into the story completely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, nobody would have ever mentioned Forrest Cup as an influence, you know, but it's a very enduring influence. It almost makes me want to read the book now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been awesome. Uh, Just, I mean, you're full of so many nuggets and and just pearls of wisdom. I I like interviews like this because there's really no map and we're left with a lot more questions than we are answers at the end of something like this.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I think I'm in the, like, yeah, because I think I don't have a fixed end state of standing on a pedestal and giving advice of it. Like, you know, in the sense, I haven't become, like it's a process of becoming in a way. Hmm. Well. As speaking of questions, I have one
0: last one Yeah. You, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard me ask since you've listened yes. to our interviews. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I was thinking about that, Shini. I think that what makes something very, like it's the concept of dharma again. When I see somebody living their dharma well, mm-hmm. which is acting in line with their innate tendency, I think that makes them really, um, you know, inspirational for me because, uh, as I said, for me, Elon Musk is equally inspiring as this yogi who had spent 11 years in a cave and was teaching six school students in a village a little bit. uh, A little bit after their school. Mm -hmm. Because he was just like, I could see the purity of someone living in accordance with their tendency and not trying to be someone else. So there's this purity of dharma, I think, of like just... and, And I think I feel like our whole culture has become... Giving us messages about you should become an entrepreneur, follow your dream, hustle, this, that. And while there is a lot of purity, if you're a lawyer who's just acting with a lot of purity in his law, like, like, I think that's what, if that's your dharma, then act with purity in that dharma. And I think there's some, there's a exceptionalism in that, which is beautiful. Yeah. Well, this has been phenomenal. And, you know,
0: I, for, for everybody listening, I can't recommend this book highly enough. I mean, I don't read fiction books and I read it cover to cover in like three days. I couldn't put it down. So, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and insights with our listeners. Oh, Sreeni, it was a real pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,
2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?